This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. And now we turn to Pat Riley from the University of California, Irvine. Pat studies the entertainment industry, comedy in particular. He published The Layers of a Clown, Career Development in Cultural Production Industries in the Academy of Management Discoveries. And you also have a podcast, right, Pat? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I, it's called uh, WTF with Mark Marin. I play a 50-year-old stand-up comedian that doesn't like going to the post office and has a lot of cats. So going pretty good. Seriously, what is the name of your podcast? It's, can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, it's called The Goods from the Woods. Um, so it's basically kind of an outgrowth of my uh, my comedy research, my ethnographic research, and it's with a couple of stand-up comedians. And uh, we bring on a number of uh, comics from the – uh, local scene you know a lot of we've had some guests who uh have names uh are, are recognizable like uh trey crowder the liberal redneck was on because he's uh good friends with uh the host of the podcast uh but we usually have people that are kind of uh within the open mic or above open mic scene in la and we talk about random topics and then occasionally we might have a deep dive into something completely random like uh garth brooks chris gaines alter ego or uh World Championship Wrestling in North Korea, which is a thing, uh, which almost blew up into a whole uh, geopolitical crisis when uh, they almost detained Ric Flair. Uh, true story. Um, and then we also have kind of some wow. other episodes that are more um, – just kind of a little bit more gimmicky, you know? Um, yeah, it's a fun, it's, it's not particularly intellectual, uh, but it's, it's a fun time and you get to meet some of the wild personalities that is, uh, LA open mic stand up. Are, are you like the brainiac on the, uh, on the podcast? You like the brainy guy? Uh, actually, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. It's it's three know-it-alls, <laughs> and uh, the one no, the one major league know-it-all is uh, my friend Mr. Goodnight, who uh, is the uh, uh, kind of the the brains behind the operation. I think his knowledge of uh, the antiquities uh, could challenge or even surpass uh, Gabriel's. So that's actually a testament to how much of a of a and he does it with a a dusty Rhodes voice and uh he definitely beats me when it comes to knowledge of children's cartoons <laughs> which uh, good night constantly throw again but you asked if pat's the intellectual uh his co-host likes to annoy him by calling him dr pat <laughs> so, <laughs> so well dr pat tell us about your re i have, uh, I, have I, I want to just say straight up i, you, I have a serious topic envy you know, like there's, oh. there's, there's no secondary mm. data set that I can analyze in R, so I'm not going to study the comedy <laughs> industry, but I, I want to hear all about it. Tell us about your research. Sure. I mean, I, I, I would, if you, if you could actually lead me in a particular direction, oh, yeah, I mean, so many directions I can go in. Let's start, well, wait, let's start with the, <laughs> uh, the layers of the cloud. Cause that was a nice, uh, that was a nice piece talking about uh, the standup comedy business and, uh, moving up the ranks and uh, how to establish a career. How do you make it as a, a comedian? Well, it's it's actually very interesting because in, in stand-up comedy, it's not 
particularly linear. Like when we think of the development of a career, uh, you think about it in terms of kind of this linear progression. Like if you think about actors and actresses, you think about the sequences of better or worse uh, movie credits. Or even in the 1970s in stand-up comedy, there was a very sort of linear progression where you went to a particular club, you worked through the stable there, you got on Johnny Carson, and then you get your series development deal, and then <laughs> onward and forward. Uh, in stand-up comedy, it's actually very interesting where you kind of uh, start out in – it's not – organized around say going to a particular club but really a lot of the work happens in these kind of cliques that you form with other stand-up comedians that are starting out uh it's almost like an effect of the freshman at the lunch table right yeah from reading when pat and i were talking about it as he was writing it i was thinking like oh this is like how you know 15 years after you start grad school, you'll start a podcast with people who were not only your cohort, but in the next cohort. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of the, the development uh, happens because there is a lot of exclusion of newcomers. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you have to kind of earn your stripes. There's a lot of dues paying. Uh, one one person in my study basically said that like you are basically a non-entity until you're in for six months because they presume you're gonna like just quit. You know. Um, so one of the things that's kind of interesting is that these kind of clicks are a as Gabe kind of insinuated through the podcast example, these are an enduring aspect of your career. You will go back to the people that you started out with a lot of times, if they're still doing stand-up comedy, to uh, workshop jokes because they're the people that know you well. Um, and a lot of your sustaining within the stand-up comedy uh, community and in this career is predicated upon having this strong clique of people. And so you kind of work from there into the sort of larger domain of the community. And then you work your way, which is, you know, fellow stand up comedians. And then you work your way up into the industry where you get your paydays. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, is that you work your way, not progressively where you kind of graduate from doing you know, small sets at the comedy store at two in the morning in front of a bunch of drunk tourists, mm -hmm. right? Even if you're Chris Rock, you're still doing that. You're still going into these smaller sorts of venues. So it's more of a thing where it's not necessarily a linear progression where you grow out of a certain thing, but it's really actively part of being a stand-up comedian that you kind of work downwards and work into these smaller venues, uh, different levels of, 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 you know, your organization have different purposes in the construction of your uh of your bits of ideas of the execution of ideas and it's something that is kind of it doesn't matter if you're you know a total jabroni that just started out or somebody like a chris rock or or um or dave Chappelle. even i mean it's it's a kind of the way in which careers develop and it's one of those things that i kind of noticed as i was doing my uh, ethnographic work uh, my participant observation work uh, among stand-up comedians that this is a really kind of the way in which their social organization but also how they kind of create these things and how things get produced i have a question so what you know when you see movies where uh there's a like adam sandler a popular comedian and the same he seems to have the same troupe of actors in all of his movies. Are those basically, if somebody makes it big, you dole out favors to your friends and bring up the, the group? Is that how that works? Or Well, uh, all Adam, th that's a tough example because all Adam Sandler comedies are the same movie, uh, just with a different title. <laughs> but I think a better example of that is, and you know, I use pseudonyms in my study, but uh, I'll, I don't think that this is controversial. One of the first people I met in my study was Gerard Carmichael. Uh, when he was starting out as a uh, stand-up comedian, uh, he was doing open mic. So Gerard Carmichael, who was the creator and the star of the show, The Carmichaels, uh, he has a couple of HBO specials. Like, he's the real deal. Um, 
the people that he started out with uh, when he was starting out with open mics uh, persisted onward throughout his career. And when he was staffing the uh, writers of the of, of the Carmichael show, he brought in a couple of people, uh, Ari Ketcher and Willie Hunter, who were people that he started out with. And you could think of it as a favor, but another way in which you can think about it is, is that when uh, Gerard was coming up with the concepts of the show, he was working them out, these scenarios out with Willie and Ari and his other people that he did uh, stand up with when, you know, when they were waiting for their, their set times. So they kind of have a really strong chemistry. So when you come into, you know, uh, your first project, like somebody like a Gerard Carmichael, uh, you have those people in there that know uh, who you are, that you kind of vibe with, and you can kind of execute those ideas because they're familiar with who you are, especially if you're a newcomer. But I mean, Amy Schumer does that a lot with, you know, her movies, you know, you see Nikki Glaser and Natasha Leggero and other people like that. So it's like, a lot of times when you look at comics who get uh, big projects, you'll see people that they started out with within the uh, within the mix. Did you see parallels between the comedy business and the academic business? Um, it, yes. And I, I don't think this is imposed by the fact that I was I'm an academic that was hanging around <laughs> with stand up comics and forcing my world upon how I see theirs. Uh, there are a lot of similarities, I think, uh, in, in many aspects of. The stuff that I study. So in my dissertation, I mean, some of the time things that I studied, like, you know, the ways in which people organize each other in that paper that we've been talking about. Uh, also, I had a paper a chapter in my uh, dissertation that talked about quitting, why people stick in it, into it. Yeah. Um, and I when I was reading it, I was just like, man, there are a lot of similarities with why people continue in academics, why they continue adjuncting and things like that. When, you know, it kind of seems like a the idea of having a really good tenure track job is remote and that maybe they should do something else. I mean, there's a lot of similarities that I saw within. Uh, You've got to flesh that out. Why do people stick at it? Like uh, either in this in our business or theirs? I think there's a there's a certain like kind of commitment trap involved right that there's a, a certain aspect of it, at least with stand-up comics that i saw where people um you don't know if you're going to be successful right and success is is very tough to kind of qualify in stand-up comedy because there is a sort of thing where you can get on uh it's you know a comedy central special right a 30-minute special and you're making like fifteen thousand dollars a year like you know like stardom is not i mean people like call i've heard people call a teacher if you're a star you get teacher money or you know bartender money that's like kind of the level of income that you get but uh in order to sustain in it uh you don't know if you're going to be able to sustain and have a career i mean a lot of people say it takes 10 years to figure that sort of thing out so people kind of progress uh forward with it and as they kind of go along at that 10-year point uh, they realize that they've accrued so many uh, specific uh, social connections, right? Uh, so many specific skills. They've kind of been outside of the uh, the uh, job market for 10 years trying to pursue stand-up comedy, either not having a job or working a kind of crappy temp job or working as a, as a, uh, a waiter or something like that, that they kind of stick into it because it's like, well, I ha- it becomes almost like a sunk cost fallacy in a way. Um, and I've noticed, I mean, I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but I mean, I'm talking to some of my, um, people I know that were kind of in the later, uh, areas of their PhD programs or people that were kind of adjuncting and lecturing for a long time. I mean, a lot of the language that they talked about with, with, I mean, this is purely anecdotal. I mean, there was kind of some similarities in the way in which they talked about what they were doing. I mean, some of the comics kind of talked about being in stand-up comedy was like being in prison, right? <laughs> you know, and that they like, didn't really enjoy it and they 
have this like warped view of the world and they don't find other people funny anymore. So it's like, <laughs> so that's, that was one of the things that I kind of got into, but yeah, sometimes, I mean, it is cultural production. Like what we do is kind of a cultural production field. So, I mean, there were some, some definite similarities and it's loosely structured in a way. I mean, obviously there's bureaucratic stuff with what we do, but uh, there's, there's a, uh, there were some overlaps kind of scary sometimes. <laughs> so, so Pat, so I had a question since this is about cultural production, I'm wondering how much of, uh, you know, it's like, I think about, you know, I think about the places in the U S that I think of as being just these hubs, like of where, like, you know, like, are like are the comics that we think of as our comics sure, yeah. are produced, right? So I think about I think about Chicago, I think about LA, I think about New York, I think about Boston, right? So wh- what is it about? Uh, uh, because because you were focusing primarily on LA, right? Correct. Yes. So what is it? What is what is distinct about the comics that come out of L.A.? Like, is there an L.A. comic culture? <laughs> uh, well, one of the things that's that that there's almost like kind of two L.A.s in a way where a lot of the people that make it big in their respective scenes, like a lot of people that are from uh, D.C. or a lot of people that are from Austin or a lot of people that are from uh, Atlanta, a lot of people, even a lot of people that are, make it big in New York uh, come to Los Angeles and, you know, in some respects, they have to not totally start over again, but it's they aren't at the same position as they were in their home cities. Um, and mm-hmm. so they come in and they go through kind of the process of entrenching themselves. The, a lot of the things with L.A. is that a lot of the comics are in L.A. I mean, there's just a huge concentration of them and the opportunities to get jobs as writers or get jobs as an actor or actress uh, or, you know, a lot of the, the, um, the entertainment industry that's conducive to being a stand-up comic, uh, and making money off of it is in LA. Uh, there are people that do start in LA and that is like the worst thing that you can possibly do. <laughs> because the audiences are terrible. Nobody actually goes out to go see stand-up comedy. Like I, really, it's like, if you're in, um, DC or if you're in, uh, Atlanta, people actually go to see sta- uh, stand-up comedy. Like they mm-hmm. actually go see shows. They actually go see even open mics, uh, in LA, nobody goes to see stand-up comedy. It feels like, you know, there are shows I've seen like, you know, star comedians perform in coffee houses mm-hmm. in front of five people. And these are people that are like, mm-hmm. we'd all know, um, but That's yeah, crazy, I mean, I, I remember, you know, performing at a, at a coffee house and, you know, it, Maria Bamford, who's a, a big kind of uh, figure. I mean, you know, she would go out and go on tour and charge $50 a head at, you know, the, you know, Chuckle Hut and, you know, any town America in L.A. It's like, you know, there there isn't that uh, level of interest in people going to see stand up comedy. So the, the level of talent is really high. And the there's a relative apathy when it comes to stand-up comedy. And it's not like total apathy, but there's a stronger apathy for stand-up comedy and less of an interest than if you're in uh, Atlanta or another city where you can actually go in front of real crowds of, of, of civilians. Uh, in L.A., you're playing to your peers, and that makes it very tough if you're new and you don't know what you're doing uh, to really get uh, to get entrenched. Uh, and I kind of found that out the hard way in some respects when I was doing the, the study. Um, it, it reminds, yeah. me, it but, reminds yeah. me of – I remember thinking about this, how in the sociology business, 
part of the challenge is trying to appeal to an audience that is quite certain that they could do a better job than you're doing right now. Anytime you're saying, <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it's the same thing doing LA comedy. Yeah, is there a viewer number two problem with going to a club where everyone in the audience is a... Uh, <laughs> all the empty chairs. All the empty chairs are reviewer number two. All the comics are reviewer number two. Uh, basically, your friends are the only yeah. people that aren't reviewer number two. So. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so, so, Pat, so, so, I'm, I just want to wrap my head around this. So, so this was an ethnography, but like more than that, like you were, it was like participant observation. So you were, so you were putting yourself out Correct, there, yes. right? You know, doing stand up. I had never done stand up right? comedy before um, this study, no inclination to do it whatsoever, but I kind of had to do it in order to, you know, gain access and kind of get a sense of like the tacit knowledge that's, that's involved awesome. in this sort of uh, uh, exercise. Yeah. So, so yeah, so 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 I have two follow ups on that. Okay, so what was the most glorious non academic <laughs> moment for you, like up on that stage where you were like, "I'm victorious," right? And and the and then the second is, did it in in any way actually help, right? In the, the academic like this like production of knowledge per, um, process, or did it actually maybe hurt it a little bit? Made you think that oh, you've gone the wrong certainly route? Certainly, I did not go the wrong route. I should not be on any <laughs> stage. I shouldn't be talking through any microphones. I was I, the way in which I think of it is that the best way to describe my ability in stand up comedy is that I'm better at stand-up comedy than Louis Quaquant is as an amateur boxer. That's like the only standard that I can really say. Like, I am by no, but I mean, there was, um, yeah, I mean, there were a couple of times in which, you know, it, you, when you have a joke that hits, that is something that that's really edifying. I mean, when you have something that you work on and, and you actually get that first bit of, of, of laughter and from the hardened comics and you get accepted uh, into social circles and stuff like that. I mean, by no means do I consider myself a comic at all. Right. But I, I think that one of those things that, you know, there is a certain thing where there's kind of small incremental things where there wasn't like a, a thing where I like laid down a joke at this one open mic and, and you know, everybody <laughs> stood up and carried them away on their uh, shoulders like Ruby. But uh, I mean, they're, 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 it's just kind of the small things. And I mean, one of the things that was actually really interesting about my study, especially given the fact of like where I was and what time I did it was that the people that I, I, I started out with that were starting out as being new open micers are starting to kind of develop their careers and be known figures. And there are people that are really talented that didn't uh, do that, but it was like actually getting to see really super talented people uh, do their thing is like, that was kind of the best part of doing this study was seeing people that are at the top of their game developing in kind of a sea of, I mean, Gabe's gone to a couple of stand-up comedy shows. It's like, you see some utter garbage. <laughs> and, I, I, I can attest to that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, um, and seeing like kind of people develop that are really, really talented and seeing their process. That is the thing that I think was really kind of the, especially I'm not like a huge stand-up comedy fan or anything like that. I didn't go into it as like a stand-up comedy fan. I mean, that was the thing that was just really cool seeing people uh, develop and, and do their thing. I mean, I, my ability as a stand-up comic, uh, I think it made me, made me a little bit hardened uh, 
so that I could teach better, teach undergraduates better. Uh, but I would not recommend that as a way to improve your pedagogy is, you know, going out to open mics. And, you know. Is it harder to write a paper or develop a 30 minute bit? <laughs> uh well I've, I've written papers and i haven't done a 30 <laughs> i don't have a 30 um i mean it's it's relatively I, I think the process is kind of the same right where you know there is when we get when we read the papers in journals and we watch the shows you know we watch people's like comedy central specials and stuff like that you see the finished product you don't get a sense of the process and i think that there is a sort of long-standing it's more public when it comes to people developing their 30s. Uh, but I think that, you know, there's a very similar sort of thing of, of, of frustration and, and, and workshopping and things like that that kind of play out. I think that doing a, a, doing a good 30 is incredibly, incredibly tough. It takes people like 10 or, or 12 years to really make a really solid 30 minutes. And that's why you have a lot of people that do their first 30 uh, when they're asked to do their next 30, like, and they only have two years to do it or only have a year to do it. I mean, that's why you have the sophomore slump so hard. I mean, and that's becoming really apparent with, you know, Netflix basically just bombarding everybody with like just churned out stand up comedy specials that are just like one after another after another. Uh, yeah, doing the 30 is just incredibly, incredibly difficult. That's really good. And, and you can be really successful. with. How many minutes do you have? I know in character, you have like, what, 12 minutes? Um, <laughs> I, I yeah, so I, I do stand up as alter ego sometimes, uh, just to spice it up a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's I would say probably I could do I, I, I could do 15. I probably have about 15. But I mean, if you took my 15 on the road as me to have me as like a feature, I would not be a good feature. I don't think mm-hmm. uh, like it's it's yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to, to do, you know, stand up comedy at a high level. I mean, it takes a lot of work. I mean, people will hit 25 open mics a week for 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 a number like three, four years in order to just get that first solid 10 15 minutes i mean even to get like a conan quality set that's only five yeah and just to uh give a sense of like what kind of venues these are at i've seen pat do his set two or three times and all those times it was at a record store but they just kind of push some of the bins to the side and set up uh folding chairs yeah yeah there's a lot of really like i mean it's incredibly it's almost like punk rock in a way how they do these kind of venues because there are the the established clubs uh, and there was kind of a very sort of uh, stagnant period with the club. So, um, you know, the co- by the clubs like Comedy Store, uh, the Improv, and the Laugh Factory. And the Comedy Store has actually kind of had a, a resurgence as of late by kind of adopting more of these sort of tactics of having the comics produce their own shows. But a lot of the shows in L.A. are very much in, like, Impro- uh, improvised like settings like backyards there was a lot of backyard shows uh shows in adult bookstores there's one show called the pleasure chest at this place called the pleasure chest that gets a it's a great show uh the best example the two best examples of that there was one called a show called holy fuck that was in downtown la um that would get like they'd have to get security to keep people out and this was in a time where people weren't going out to see comedy very often uh, and they would fill a 300 seat uh movie theater like like that um, but my favorite one is, and I think the one that people best know is that there's a, uh, uh, there was a theater and this is kind of noteworthy because it's closing in a month in the back of a place called Meltdown Comics. It's a comic book store in LA. Uh, and that's where they produce the podcast, the Nerdist. Um, 
is that uh but uh Kamel Nanjiani and um mm. and Jonah Ray started a show in the back of uh, uh Meltdown Comics called Comedy Meltdown that was it was gangbusters. I mean, it, they turned it into a Comedy Central show, uh, series. Um, but yeah, I mean, there a lot of the venues that are really, um, you know, uh, where this stuff happens are places that you would not expect. I mean, it's almost like comedy gets foisted on you. It like just shows up in this kind of gorilla way, like you're sipping coffee, and it's just like, oh yeah, now there's a bunch of stand-up comics. I mean, it's 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 kind of uh, crazy in that sort of way. How like kind of just, and this isn't every city. I mean, if you're in a major city in LA. Uh, not at all. If you're in a major city in the United States, uh, a lot of the stand-up comedy in New York and and uh, uh, you know Washington D.C., Atlanta, they all kind of unfold in that cert- in that type of way. So I mean, that's kind of alternative comedy, as they call it. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask. I mean, we've been talking about the material from your last special, but I wanted to talk about the stuff that you're still kind of workshopping. Uh, so can you tell us about the joke theft paper? That you're st- <laughs> that, you know, you have. Uh, you know, it's going through the pipe. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. And, and hopefully should be out relatively soon. But it's yeah, still in the pipe. It's under it's under review, so it's like uh, it's which we title it as like. Yeah, like <laughs> the title of it. No, I'm I'm currently uh, one of the paper that I'm working on right now is kind of on the uneven um, or apparently uneven uh, enforcement of norms uh, concerning joke theft, um, and yeah, it's 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 fascinating because it is kind of loosely coupled to. I mean, there's verbatim thefts, right? But it's loosely coupled to how similar the joke is to another person's joke, and it more reflects kind of how you're seen as a member of the community, right? If you're an authentic comic, like if you're a comics comic. So it's not like your jokes are authentic or you're telling these like heart-wrenching stories about your, you know, trips to rehab or, you know, various life traumas. (laughs) I mean, it's like kind of based around if you're understood as being a member of the comedy community. So it becomes more attached, like Joe theft becomes more attached to things like, do you uh, stay within your allotted time? Uh, Do you treat other comics with respect are you part of the even if you're a star do you still go out and perform and grind and things like that and also if you're a hack i mean so it it, that sort of thing where there are people that will steal jokes like outright but you know there's other people like dane cook who get got labeled like a joke thief and really if you look at kind of the the uh the the formal quote unquote theft, I mean, it's a borderline case. And I saw a number, a number of cases where comics will acknowledge, you know, cases that are more um, uh, severe and more egregious and kind of explain them away or kind of uh, funnel them into the uh, world of, of gossip and or even just say, you know, oh, this this isn't a theft because this guy isn't a writer. He's a performer and, you know, he or she is making it their own. So it's not really so it's, it's kind of this weird sort of uneven uh application of this of this kind of a uh, normative violation and that's the the paper that i've been kind of wrestling with it's my it's my ma paper so it's about a million years old at this point it feels like but that's the kind of uh, the paper that i've been really kind of devoting a lot of my attention to right now what, what makes a hack a hack um well usually uh i mean a hack is like kind mm-hmm. of a very uh subjective term but i think it's usually with stand-up comics they they kind of associate it with taking the easy route right getting the easy laugh or sticking to certain hackneyed premises right uh you know hack is short for you know i think probably short for hackneyed uh that you stick to basically hackneyed premises where it's like ah dating is hard in la right and and it's like (laughs) you don't go beyond the base of it a lot of the the kind of uh you know a lot of the the assignment of 
how quality somebody is as a stand-up comic is, you know, do you even have stand-up comics that'll say, hey, look, funny is funny. And and part of it is, um, you know, how much effort do you go into to not take the easy laugh, but take the kind of uh, circuitous route to taking, you know, not getting that easy laugh, but getting a get a laugh regardless. I mean, it's kind of a show of, of your craft expertise that you can, you know, take a, a trite topic, right? And get a different take on that sort of thing, or take a topic that is completely random and nonsensical and get a, you know, a good take on that, or even take a topic that is something that is uh, traumatic and being able to get a, a uh, you know, good laugh on that. You know, like Lori Kilmartin, who's a stand-up comic, had a special called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad, right? And it's absolutely hilarious. And it's, you know, very much shows like, you know, kind of the things that are not hacky. I mean, people will talk mm-hmm. about hackiness as like just being something where it's like you just go for the same stuff or you go for the easy route, you know? Uh, so that's kind of the, but it's completely <laughs> subjective. It's kind of like the sh- <laughs> the last installment, like the third installment on Netflix of the Chappelle, like stand-up up where he talks about having a goldfish where he has he has a goldfish bowl where he has just random words and he just yeah. picks one out and and he's like and i can tell a joke about it and and that's brilliant right are there many people that you think can do that like you can i mean i'm not saying that dave Chappelle can but i'm kind of convinced that he can but um <laughs> uh, he, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of when the sausage is being made, he does go up on stage and ramble quite a bit, but he's Dave Chappelle, so he can ramble in a very sort of uh, entertaining <laughs> way. It's not just you know, him taking up space. But, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a really seasoned. I mean, you know, when people talk about like how people take down hecklers and, and things like that, um, a lot of comics that are good seasoned stand up comics kind of know uh, how to construct jokes or know how to just do what they need to do in a way where you can give them a certain topic and they can craft something that is a a really great joke, you know, because they're kind of, they're, they're familiar with kind of how to do the process, right. And how to kind of construct something uh, that is uh, that, that turns out, but there's a lot of work involved. I mean, obviously there's a lot of work that gets into it, but I mean, seeing a lot of people, you know, react to stuff on stage or react to certain stimuli, or there was even a show called set list where they would just basically have a wheel and they would spin the wheel and say, okay, do, uh, do two minutes on this particular topic. I mean, there's a lot of comics that can definitely, you know, hone in and be able to do that sort of thing, but it's almost like in a way when, you know, Howard Becker talks about jazz uh-huh. improvisation, right? You know, where it's like, you know, the standards well enough, you know, kind of the basic pieces well enough, the conventions well enough that if, you know, something comes around and somebody, you know, heckles you or somebody says, hey, do a joke about this particular thing. You know, the conventions well enough that you can kind of uh, really do something super solid and then maybe have your small little twing on it where through polish or, or, you know, just being supremely talented and having a good point of view. Uh, One last question from me. Does the cream rise to the top in this business? <laughs> uh, not necessarily. To what degree? Uh, to what degree? I mean, you know, there is – that's a very tough question. I mean, because it is okay. – I mean, it's a cultural production industry, right? There is a – it's stochastic, right? There is a element where there are certain people – that are really quite talented that remain in obscurity and are kind of comics comics but nobody kind of really knows them outside of uh, a small group of people that either see them or uh, are fans of them or fellow comics and there's other people that 
get very successful and you know the comics kind of throw up their hands and say why is this person you know successful and they and you know some of that stuff invites like you know the the joke theft sort of accusations right um you know why why is dane cook successful i think he's a hack you know when why isn't you know eddie pepitone the biggest comic in the world right um so i mean there is a sort of thing where i personally you know what i see is that there's a lot of people that are talented that get their opportunities right but i think that when it comes to uh when it comes to uh the cream rising to the top right it's a it's a cultural production industry and it is you know it's stochastic i mean there are tons of things that prevent really talented people from rising to the top uh you know it there's tons of reasons why people uh do not that do rise to the top that people feel are not necessarily successful and i mean it's really tough to make that sort of judgment right um but yeah so when you so when you go on stage, do you use your your real name or, or a pseudonym? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I did use my real name, mm-hmm. um, and for for better or for worse, because I have told so many bad jokes that uh, <laughs> I think, maybe, you know, and not like bad like topic wise. I mean, these are like legitimately not funny. Like they're not problematic. They're just not funny because i i you know i i I tend to work very clean um but i did perform for a short time i'd mentioned this before in alter ego because Mm -hmm. i don't find myself to be particularly interesting and there's a lot of guys that look like me in stand-up comedy in la right guys with like you know black um uh, plastic frame glasses and beards and stuff like that so i started doing alter egos on stage um (laughs) which uh, I, I went under the name Butt Rock Brett for a while, who was the, uh, imagine if Limp Bizkit was an actual sentient person who did stand-up comedy. That was uh, that was him, and I had like a wig and all that sort of thing. And then uh, uh, I would go on for a short time as your dad, and I would go on and basically do stand-up comedy as everyone's disapproving dad that was mad that they were like that they weren't in law school like they promised their parents, you know, and that they're yeah. So I mean, but yeah, I mean, I've kind of operated around there with uh, with um, uh, under my own name, and no, there aren't any clips of me doing comedy on YouTube because mm. I do not. Yeah, I, it. it I don't think it was very good. So, you know. <laughs> There's hundreds of hours of you doing your podcast which yeah. is under your own name. And it's also, you know, edited and, and, you know, uh, yeah, different. I mean, it's a different medium, yeah. right? Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, my undergraduate advisor, uh, was, is Tim Dowd. And, uh, I remember meeting with Tim, hmm. uh, after I finished my PhD uh, very recently and he just looked at me and he was just like, if I, if somebody told me that you were doing this project back in like 2006 when you graduated from uh, undergrad, I wouldn't have believed it. You know, so it's one of those sorts of things where I'm not naturally uh, – that's not part of my natural sort of personality to kind of do this sort of thing. So I, 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 I don't know. I don't think that – it didn't lend me well to doing stand-up comedy well, I think. But yeah, This pretextual issue with the joke theft is endlessly fascinating to me, and – you know, it, it's there's other areas in social life yeah. where you see somebody violates a norm or is seen to be an obtuse or mean or selfish or whatever person. And so you see people make a, a pretextual accusation, um, which may or may not have some truth to it, but that's not the real reason they're making the accusation. 
It's just that you can't, there's a weird way in which the norm is the norm, but you can't accuse someone of violating the norm. You have to accuse them of something else as a way to punish them for violating the norm. Yeah, or the behavior invites mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So one example that I kind of drew an analogy with the joke theft thing is, is witchcraft accusations, right? When you don't have a sort of, you know, if you don't have like an oracle, right, that tells you that dark magic has been cast, like, you know, when Evans Pritchard was talking about the Zande people, right? Uh, a lot of cases there is the identification of witches is highly speculative. And if you look at, you know, for example, the Salem witch trials, the first three people accused of being witches, you know, they possess these sort of marginal positions within the community. I mean, you had Tichaba, who was a, a, you know, an enslaved woman, right? Uh, You had Sarah Good, who was a beggar who didn't work and, and was a, you know, and that goes against kind of these puritanical principles of, of industriousness. And then Sarah Osborne, who didn't go to church and was cohabiting with a, a guy before they got married, right? And these kind of, these sort of uh, transgressions kind of invite the accusation or invite the sort of, um, uh, you know, assigning this particular norm violation of witchcraft to these three particular individuals who have these sort of uh, previous behaviors and are also understood as being peripheral uh, members of the community or people that are considered to be kind of non-members of the community because they're, uh, you know, not, they're, they're beggars or something like that. So, and there's, you know, other sorts of things, you know, kind of academic plagiarism and, and, you know, other sort of analogies, even, you know, I, I kind of see that, there's some parallels with the you know questionable research practices in in uh, in in social psych, right? Where there are people that make up studies. You have your Michael Lacors that just make stuff up, right? But you know there is that sort of you know p hacking stuff is kind of a prevalent sort of practice. But you have the selection of of particular individuals, you know, like Amy Cuddy and stuff like that, that get accused of these sort of um, norm violations. And it's, you know, it can be pretextual. It could also be the fact that, you know, you can't, you know, uh, you know, label somebody as being a transgressor for being doing pop psychology, right? So you can, find, you know, kind of hone in on this as a pretext, or it's something that invites people to say, oh, there has to be some sort of, of explanation why or some sort of sign as to why that is the case. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury and Lisette Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.